Right. Well, those that N3 deep slow wave sleep really only happens in the first half of the night. And if you miss that first half of the night, you miss all of your deep slow wave sleep, that important garbage removal and protein building state. So you miss repairing and cleaning your brain if you miss that N3 stage of sleep. Unfortunately, the N3 stage of sleep is also kind of vulnerable to aging. The size of our slow waves goes down as we get older. It's variable from person to person. Some people that starts at 30 and some people that doesn't start until 80. So it's very variable when your slow waves start to diminish. But it's, it's, it's linked to all kinds of hormone release patterns that are kind of important for us. And so if we miss that first half of the night, we miss that. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And today's guest is Dr. Gina Poe. Dr. Poe is a renowned neuroscientist and professor of integrative biology and physiology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her lab and research focuses on how sleep impacts the brain, memory, learning, cognitive function, emotional health, and more. Today on the podcast, we discuss how to improve the quality of your sleep, the different stages of sleep, and why they are each uniquely important, why getting on a sleep schedule is a must for a good night's rest, what you can do if you have trouble falling or staying asleep, how things like caffeine and alcohol impact your sleep, how to reset your circadian rhythm to optimize sleep, what it means if you wake up exhausted, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going, and welcome Dr. Gina Poe to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Gina Poe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Doug. I appreciate you having me. I'm super excited to have you on the show. I think my audience is going to love this conversation. And selfishly, for reasons I talked about a few minutes ago with you before we started recording, I'm super excited. And I guess a good place for us to start is we all know how important sleep is. I think we can get that out of the way, right? Sure. But I know we hear a lot now about sleep quality versus quantity, and it's actually more important to pay attention to the quality of sleep instead of the quantity of sleep. So let's just start there. Like, Why is sleep quality so important? And how does somebody know if they've gotten a quality night's sleep? Well, that's a really good question, Doug, because in fact, we don't really know what aspects of sleep make for good night's sleep because we don't know how sleep does what it does. We do know it's really important to life and to our emotional states and to our ability to make decisions and judge and learn and remember and for our metabolism and for our heart function, all kinds of things sleep is good sleep is important for, but we don't always know which aspects of sleep that are important. But we do know if you have a multiply disrupted sleep, if you wake up many times at night, then that constitutes a bad night's sleep, both from a subjective person's view, as well as from a lot of these other measures that I'm talking about, all these things that we're talking about the function of sleep is. So we know sleep continuity is an important part of a good night's sleep. But there are also other things that you as a person can't tell that you're having during sleep that also constitute a good night's sleep. And one of them is big, slow wave activity during the first couple of phases of sleep, cycles of sleep. We have deep, slow wave sleep and the size 
the amplitude of those deep, slow waves, which about happen about one per second, one to three per second, seems to be indicative of both a need for sleep and a good night's sleep. And um, so that's one thing, but you can't tell how big your slow waves are, nor can anybody looking at you. You actually have to look at your brain waves. Another thing is the density of your sleep spindles, and sleep spindles are in stage two sleep when you're falling asleep, and then also when you're transitioning from deep slow sleep into REM, the dream state. Those sleep spindles come once every 10 some seconds or so, and the density of those spindles is indicative of a good night's sleep as well. So the lower our fight or flight sympathetic nervous system is when we're in that stage of sleep, the higher your density of sleep spindles. And sleep spindles are important for consolidating memories from the hippocampus to the cortex. So they, um, they're important for creativity and lots of things. And then the last thing you can't tell when you're looking at your own sleep is um, amplitude and steadiness of theta during REM sleep, that dream state. And that's another thing that only EEG can tell. But what we can know from our own feeling of having of sleeping is we can have a rough idea of how many times we woke up each night. And the more often, the worse it is in general. You know, one long awakening isn't so bad as long as you can get back to sleep eventually. And But multiple times, I mean, if you have sleep apnea, the minimum diagnosis is five times per hour, which is a lot. <laughs> it's very, very a lot. So that's the minimum diagnosis for obstructive sleep apnea, which is when you stop breathing when you fall asleep. But that is already even the very mild obstructive sleep apnea is very, very bad. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing all that. You know, it seems like you pointed out like a few things that we can be on the lookout for to tell if we've had a bad night's sleep, but a lot of the other things that could help us determine whether or not we've had a good or bad night's sleep. I'm sure people could find out when they do, if they do a sleep study or something that could pick up on all these other things. I wanna talk more about the disrupted sleep and I struggle with this. I know a lot of people struggle with this where they toss and turn at night, they wake up in the middle of the night, they can't get back to sleep. But before we do that, I think it's important to provide some context on the different stages of sleep because I think most people when they think of sleep and deep sleep, they're like, oh, REM sleep, like that's the big thing now. What are the four stages of sleep and why is each of them important? Right. So four stages are three stages of non-REM sleep. N1, non-REM stage one, which is what you first fall into when you're first falling asleep. It's almost a dozing state. That's the state out of which you have hypnagogic hallucinations sometimes, which is when you sort of jump when you're falling asleep, you, you feel like you're falling or you feel like, you know, a monster has jumped on your chest or something and you startle awake and that's N1 stage sleep. And usually you don't even notice that that state just smoothly progresses to the N2 state with those sleep spindles. And that's actually constitutes the majority of the night is that N2 state. And that's where there's a lot of energy restoration going on in our brain. What I mean in our bodies, it means the free adenosine, which gets freed up. The more we use our brain during wakefulness, the more we use ATP, which is a packet of energy, gets broken down into free adenosine. And adenosine, as it builds up, makes us sleepy. The signal in our brain lets us know that we've been awake a long time and we're sleepy. And that's the... Um, Adenosine receptor is what's blocked with caffeine, so it makes us think that we're not sleepy when we actually are. Um, but that's when adenosine, free adenosine, gets 
converted back to ATP, that energy packet. So if you get into N2 sleep for any length of time, 20 minutes or so, you're already starting to rebuild the energy of your brain. So that's why a power nap is a power nap. Actually, re rebuilds the power. And then N3, uh, non-REM stage three, which is the deep slow wave state, which I talked about. And that's when big slow waves of activity and inactivity sweep through our brain. And that's actually sort of the deep cleaning state of sleep when we're actually cleaning out the debris that's built up over the day. So it's kind of when the garbage men come by and, and clean up our brains. So that's N3. There's also thought to be some memory consolidation, but certainly proteins are being built during that stage. And we have a big bolus of growth hormone release during that state as well. And so proteins are being built and our bodies are being repaired, including our brains. So that's an important state for that. And if you, those are the states you get in the first half of the night. You also get after that a REM sleep, which is the rapid eye movement dream state of sleep, which is the sexiest state because in fact, you know, that's when we have the most fun if you remember your dreams at all. And it's also a super important stage for resetting our emotional system this is some of the research that's been done most recently, resetting our emotional system so that we're ready emotionally for the day ahead of us. We get that every 90 minutes or so on average throughout the night, and it lasts for 15 minutes or so, something like 15 or 20 minutes. And yeah, that's the state where we're dreaming. We're also able to prune away some things that aren't necessary in our brains anymore. Kind of like if we have new information, we have to get rid of some old information that's no longer useful to us. And so that's the REM sleep stage. And we go through all of those states of sleep about four or five times a night. We don't always go back into N1, that dozing state. Only when we wake up do we go back to N1. But the N2, N3, and REM, we keep going cycling through about four or five times on a normal night's sleep. Wow. That's so, so fascinating to me. And what's even more fascinating is, you know, I've heard you talk about like how each of these stages of sleep are equally essentially as important, right? Because they all do different things for our physiology and for our biology. But I've also heard you talk about the role of like having a set like schedule, like of a time you go to bed and a time you wake up. Like, why is that so important, not only for sleep, but in the context of making sure that you go through each of these different sleep cycles? Right. Well, those that N3 deep slow wave sleep really only happens in the first half of the night. And if you miss that first half of the night, you miss all of your deep slow wave sleep, that important garbage removal and protein building state. So you miss repairing and cleaning your brain if you miss that N3 stage of sleep. Unfortunately, the N3 stage of sleep is also kind of vulnerable to aging. The size of our slow waves goes down as we get older. It's variable from person to person. Some people that starts at 30 and some people that doesn't start until 80. So it's very variable when your slow waves start to diminish. But it's, it's, it's linked to all kinds of hormone release patterns that are kind of important for us. And so if we miss that first half of the night, we miss that. Also, interestingly, if you go to bed at the same time every night, some research out of Georgia Tech University shows that that's really correlative with good brain aging is a regular bedtime and a regular waking up time. So if you are very variable and one night you go to bed at nine, the next night you go to bed at two, that has you miss a lot of these sleep stages that would be important and is predictive of poor brain health as you get older. 
So how can somebody know like what time they should be going to bed? Because I mean, I'm sure this all varies depending on people's biology, depending on their schedule. Like how can somebody begin to understand and determine like when they should go to bed? Well, everybody needs, it seems, a different amount of sleep. And each person has a sleep fingerprint. Basically, it's their own style and manner of sleeping and their own density of sleep spindles and their own amplitude of slow waves and all of that. So you, one person usually can't tell another person when they should go to bed. I think you should listen to your body. And that means really listening to your body, not just forcing your body to do what your brain wants it to do, like, you know, watch two more movies before going to sleep or whatever it is, but actually listen to your physical body and your and how you feel. You know, for some people, they need nine hours. And if they don't get nine hours, they don't feel well. Some people feel good after four and a half hours. But even with those who do pretty well on four and a half hours sleep, the studies show that the longer you go with that restricted sleep profile, the more chances you will have accidents and be cognitively impaired and all of that. So even if you think you're fine with four and a half hours or three hours of sleep, it's probably unhealthily small amount. Now, once in a while, if you have to wake up early for a flight or whatever, you know, don't sweat it. But in general, the healthy ranges be between six and eight hours a night, something like that. So if you need nine hours and you can't feel good and that's your habitual for you, then don't worry about it. You know, just get your nine hours. If it starts getting to be longer and longer as you get older and older or suddenly something happens and you don't feel good unless you get nine or 10 hours of sleep, it could be that something in your health has changed and you should go get that checked out. So, so interesting. And when you say like, you know, that somebody should get X amount of hours of sleep, do you mean like they should be eyes closed, like sound asleep for that amount of time? Like for instance, if they say they go to bed at nine o'clock and they sleep from like nine to 12, they wake up from like 12 to one, they go back from like one to six. Is that considered a good night's sleep? Yeah, that's actually not so unhealthy. That's something that is done around the world, actually. Awake for an hour, again, that's not something you should worry about. One big awakening time is not a problem. It's just the lots of little awakenings that's really the bad one. So 9 to 12, that's nice. Three hours, you probably have gotten at least one, maybe two full sleep cycles with your slow wave and three-stage sleep. And so if you wake up, if something wakes you up, or if you wake up for some reason at that point, then it is more difficult in general to get back to sleep right away because this is the way I put it. You've blown off those slow waves, those big slow waves that you really needed to get that's, that causes that sleep pressure to build and you want to go to sleep. And so then if it takes you another hour to go to sleep, that's fine. Spend that hour you know, daydreaming or working on a list for the next day or you know, cuddling or whatever it is, and then drift off happily back to sleep. And that sleep in the second half of the night is going to be the one that's best for your emotional system and for sort of the refining pieces of putting your brain in order, consolidating memories and cleaning up pathways that need to be erased um, in order to function the best the next day. So that's going to be more filled with that N2 stage of spindle sleep and more REM sleep. So don't skip out on that either, but don't sweat it if it doesn't come to you right away or in a consolidated fashion. 
Do you know if our body's like internal sleep system is adaptable? Meaning that if we have a schedule, let's just say, and we go to bed every night at nine o'clock and we get up at five o'clock, for instance, mm -hmm. but maybe our schedules change or, or life changes and now we go to bed at 11 and then we get up at like seven, will our body eventually adjust to make sure that we go through the full sleep cycles? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I have been using for quite some time now. Lately, I have been trying to use it as an alternative to coffee as I am trying to cut back. I can say I think it might be working. Using it can be as simple as adding it to a smoothie or mixing it with water or your favorite nut milk. Cacao Bliss starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to eartheckofoods.com slash Again, it's eartheckofoods.com slash to check it out and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Yes, we are adjustable. Our circadian rhythm especially can be reset to, for example, if you change and you're now living three hours, three time zones further east and earlier, you have to get up earlier in the morning and you want to go to bed earlier at night. That first night, it might be difficult because you're used to going to bed at a certain time. But if you expose yourself to light that first morning that you're there, which will be three hours earlier than you normally do, that will help reset your clock, all of your clocks in your body, so that you can then go to bed earlier or on time relative to that new time zone. So yeah, we can absolutely do that. And, you know, my experience with being a parent and being woken up many, many times at night the first year or so of my children's lives, I also know that you can survive that as well. Thankfully, it's short-lived, but I was awakened, you know, three or four times per night for about a year for each of them. And as long as I could get a nap that day or sleep in and go to bed earlier and all of that, you can be all right. Yeah. <laughs> are you pro naps? Like I've heard, I guess, both sides of the argument that some people are against naps, some people are for naps. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I am pro one nap a day. And as long as it's early enough in the daytime, like as in, in the afternoon, but not past three or so, then you can still get a good night's sleep at the regular time and, and build up that need for that deep slow wave sleep. So your night's sleep is still restful. And I myself love getting a nap. If I can get a nap in around one o'clock or to two, two thirty, that's a full cycle of sleep and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But there are people who don't like to nap, they hate to nap. And in fact, some of the research from Sarah Mednick's lab shows that those who never nap and hate napping actually don't benefit from a nap the way those who love napping do. So again, that's individual. Yeah. I, so your pro naps, that's awesome. So for those listening, make sure that if you're getting a nap in, you keep it to like an hour, hour and a half, you know, sometime before like the early afternoon or so. You talked about people who wake up in the middle of the night. And I want to really dive deep into this because this was something when I pulled my audience, they wanted to know. What I heard you say is you didn't recommend somebody 
like watch TV or check their phone. Like I heard you say, you know, if you want to cuddle, if you want to daydream, if you want to like jot down your thoughts about the next day, like what are some do's and don'ts for somebody if they wake up in the middle of the night? Well, I think it depends a little on why you're waking up. If you're waking up because you've got a big deadline ahead and you're worrying about that, it's really not going to help you to lie in bed tossing and turning and worrying about that big deadline. In fact, it's better to get up and work on it until you feel satisfied that you've made headway and then go back to sleep and then start your day. So I wouldn't recommend things like movies, unless that's your work <laughs> and that's what you're worrying about. Or a boring book would probably be fine too, uh, help you get back to sleep. But but if it's worry that's got you, a deadline and a temporary thing that's got you having that insomnia, then try and address that thing. That'll actually help you come to terms and be more peaceful and get a better sleep once you do get to sleep, if you can make some headway on that. Yeah. So it seems like just being proactive about whatever it is that you're worrying about if you're waking up and you're worrying about something that's a deadline or something that's work related. But what about stuff that's just random? Like, what do you say to the people who are just constantly waking up in the middle of the night and they really don't know why? Like, how do they handle that? Okay. So that, that, I mean, I would use some introspection and self analysis to see if there might be something you're worrying about that you don't even, you're not even conscious. And then again, addressing it, maybe you've had a fight with a loved one or you're worried about their health or something, you know, do something to help, you know, write them a letter. Oh, don't wake them up at the phone call in the middle of the night. That wouldn't be nice to them, but write them a letter or something that helps give you peace so you can get back to sleep. Now, if there's really no psychological reason that you're waking up, then it might be a physiological reason. And it might be something to address with a sleep physician. So there are some possibilities. One could be sleep apnea. There are actually lots of possibilities. What was I going to say about that? Waking up in the middle of the night, not for a psychological reason. In that case, if you really don't know why, and you can't pinpoint anything physiological either, then the best thing to do would be to do whatever relaxes you most. And I mean, I mean by relaxes, not whatever makes you have most fun, because that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about going to play video games or expose yourself to the blue light. Don't go for a run at that time of night. I know someone who had insomnia and he would get up and go running. That's not conducive to, you know, a best night's sleep. And instead, do things like relaxation exercises, whether it's stretching, massage, or deep breathing. Prayer sometimes helps. Whatever it is, a warm bath, you know, music, a book you like but isn't too exciting. <laughs> Something to please yourself and to help yourself get into the zone where you're happy and relaxed is what I would do. I want to talk about some things that maybe are self-induced to disrupt sleep that might have somebody wake up in the middle of the night. Now, I'm guilty that I drink caffeine throughout the day and many times in the afternoon, or I'll eat like a meal before bed. And, and so do those things disrupt sleep? Like meaning, can they like lead to somebody like potentially falling asleep, but then could the overconsumption of caffeine and food before bed lead somebody to wake up constantly in the middle of the night? Absolutely. Caffeine for me has two phases, the initial one and then sort of a boomerang effect about many hours later. And so if I have caffeine at all after about 10 in the morning, 
it's over for me. It'll be 16 hours again before I could go to sleep. So that's a big no-no. Caffeine is a very powerful blocker of the adenosine receptors, which are the signal that you are sleepy and need to go to sleep. Some people metabolize caffeine quite quickly and never have that boomerang effect. So it depends a little on your own genes. I don't metabolize it well at all. And as people get older, they also become slower about their ability to to metabolize caffeine. So as you get older, again, limit that. So you're not definitely not drinking caffeine after noon, but even restricted early and earlier if you're waking up in the middle of the night or can't fall asleep in the first place. Alcohol is something that actually has a boomerang effect as well. It might initially help you feel sleepy and relaxed and go to sleep. But as soon as that alcohol has been metabolized a few hours later, it's a paradoxical waking up. It'll wake you up and actually prevent you from having good REM sleep and that transition to REM sleep as well. And even that deep, slow wave sleep is not really serving the function it should have. So avoid caffeine and alcohol within, I'd say, you know, hours of bedtime. So, and a late meal. So Yeah, you're supposed to give your digestive system a rest too while you're asleep. But interestingly, in babies and small children, actually a full belly is conducive to sleep and sleep right away. So I think that might be something also as we get older, just give your belly a rest and have a light dinner, you know, around six o'clock. You know, that's what they call it, the um, blue light special, right? When you go to restaurants. (laughs) It's an early dinner (laughs) for the early to betters. So I'm sure we've got some people that are like, dang, like I can't drink caffeine in the afternoon. I can't have a big meal at dinner. I can't drink alcohol at night. Like, what can, like, what can I do? Maybe I can look at my phone. Like, what are, um... <laughs> <laughs> no, no phone either. <laughs> no, no, no. As far as screen time and, and watching TV and like being exposed to a lot of light at nighttime, like what would you say are some good guidelines around that to make sure that they can, you know, get it a good night's sleep? So, you know, what my family does is we put the blue light filter on our phones and our screens. So it's not like we don't have any screens, you know, after dinner. That's not true at all. But we just make sure that it's not super bright blue light because bright blue light is the thing that tells your body it's morning time. It's time to wake up. If you have it late at night, your whole circadian system will shift either earlier or later, depending on when you get exposed to it. So it's not good for a regular night's sleep, regular bedtime. But I, again, I don't, one of the ways that I fall asleep is I play a kind of mindless game on my phone, actually in bed, but without the blue light. And it's just engaging enough that I'm not cycling and worrying, but not engaging enough to keep me worried or awake or stressed. So, and I often find myself falling asleep on that. Yeah. I think it's really cool that you play like a game to kind of keep your mind at ease. Like I've heard of people also like kind of reading fictional books or something to help take their mind off of work and take their mind off their personal lives. And they can just focus on something that's not related to them. Is there anything else that you found to be successful for people that let's just say it's like nine, 10 o'clock and they're having trouble like actually getting tired enough to fall asleep. Have you found that there's certain activities or certain supplements? Like what can people do? Yeah, nine and 10 o'clock, if you're not feeling sleeping, you'd like to go to sleep at uh, this healthy hour. One of the best things you can do is during the day before, work out, get a good, heavy, hefty exercise in. And that really helps, again, build that need for a slow wave sleep 
and breaks down that adenosine and helps your body say, uh, it's time to go to bed. So get some real serious heart pumping exercise, swimming, walking, running, tennis, whatever it is, something that's fun that you find fun that will also be good for you. And it'll also help you give, give you peace of mind also about have, taking care of your body in general, which helps you get to sleep better. Yeah, because I mean, I think like the more energy you exert, the more, you know, energy you kind of burn off, I think it's going to help you feel more tired because you've obviously your body has worked itself that day and you're going to be more likely to be able to relax later at night. Just being like from your own work, your own research, your friends, even talking to your family, like what have you found to be like the common disruptors of people that have trouble sleeping? I think usually it's worry. The National Sleep Foundation said did it study about what wakes people up most at night and it turns out it's pets <laughs> you know dogs and cats jumping into bed or whining to get out or whatever pets seem to be the biggest thing to wake people up as you get older then it's the need to go to the bathroom so that's but that's also nothing to worry about if you get up once or even twice a night to go to the bathroom that's that's okay as long as you can just don't turn on the light I mean, have a night light that's not blue. Don't turn on that light, but just keep your eyes closed as much as possible without bumping into things. And don't forget to wash your hands and then go back to bed. <laughs> um, some people actually really love taking a nice bath. Actually, I've talked to several people, usually men, who like taking a cold bath. And that helps, I mean, really cold. So that sort of really, you know, makes them shiver and then a warm bath after that and then they feel like they sleep uh, like kings and that might be because they are resetting their sympathetic nervous system button you know they're really revving it up and then they calm it down and then they're just ready to slide into sleep after that yeah that's so fascinating yeah because the the cold plunges and going from the hot and cold like that's pretty trendy right now and i've noticed that when i do it i feel so much better and i feel so much more relaxed throughout the day when I do do it, I want to talk about like, I think an issue that people have, like from my own experience, when I've had trouble sleeping or I've struggled with anxiety, I was prescribed like an SSRI. And I've heard you talk about how, while they can be beneficial for many, they can also disrupt people's sleep, which is what people like really need to focus on when they're looking to improve their mental health, heal from trauma and that sort of thing. So like, what would you recommend, I guess, from a broad point of view for people who are maybe they have like a low level of anxiety to where it's not completely disrupting their life, but they want to be able to sleep better long term without going on an SSRI? What are some things they can do? Yeah, well, again, there's, there's a lot of things and different things work for different people. But again, the things that make you happy, whether it is, you know, cuddling with someone or, t or talking on the phone with someone you really love and, and enjoy speaking with, and that just makes you laugh laugh and cry, but cry in a good way, right? Those things are things that help bring down your autonomic nervous system, especially your sympathetic nervous system, and will help you get to sleep better and sleep happier and more contentedly and more completely. So it's different things for different people. Some people, prayer is the thing that works or, you know, or it is yoga or it is taking that nice warm bath after a cold bath or a shower a lot of people say they sleep much better after a shower something that you know the good thing about showers is it also you know serves as a massage as well so 
So yeah, there are different things for it might be coloring for someone or playing that stupid little mindless video game that doesn't hype you up, you know, <laughs> different things for different people. But I, but I say just go through a whole list of them until you arrive at the one that is best for you. Now, again, as we get older and our hormonal systems get dampened, melatonin release also, the amplitude of it goes down. And so it might be that your melatonin signal, which is the hormone of darkness, it's called, that helps you get to sleep and, and has a good signature of an aligned circadian rhythm. It might be that your, your melatonin signal, your endogenous melatonin signal isn't big enough anymore. And so there are a couple of ways to do that. One is to expose yourself to bright light in the morning, you know, get lots of exercise during the daytime. And that could help make sure your melatonin and all your circadian rhythms are aligned so that the release of melatonin is nice and big where it should be. And another is to take a melatonin supplement. Now, the problem with melatonin supplements is, at least in the United States, it's completely unregulated. So any one pill might have 10 times more melatonin than it says or none at all. And there's no, there's absolutely no regulation of it. So so try and get a reputable brand that has a, a better rating in terms of consistency of the amount of melatonin. And again, you shouldn't need this when you're young. If you're young, you should be able to set your circadian rhythms well by light and exercise, regular meal times. All of those things should be enough to really have an on-time circadian system. Eating meals at the same time every day is effective for sleep as well? There are lots of things that tell our body what time it is. Meal times isn't one of those, are one of those signals. Yeah. <laughs> we can actually reset our circadian rhythm by a variety of signals. The strongest one is bright light, but in absence of bright light, regular meal times is actually a really good one too. So that's another thing if you are, you know, traveling to a different time zone is try and get on their meal pattern as well as their light pattern as soon as you can. And so in the context of all this and resetting our circadian rhythm, I know we touched on it a little bit, like what are a few steps that somebody can take if they want to actually reset their circadian rhythm so they can get into something that's more like habitual and so that that way long term they can keep up with the same sleep schedule? Yeah. So like I said, bright light in the morning. That's the biggest one. Bright light, exercise regularly and meals times regularly too. Now for me, bright light in the morning while I'm exercising is absolutely like a great resetter. So if you can get outside and go walking, running, whatever it is, that is a really wonderful way to, to keep yourself on time and then breakfast, you know. But for those who are living in a dark place or you're trying to get onto a circadian, aligned with a circadian rhythm that's against where you are, the light where you are. So if you have an, a night shift worker, for example, then you need to expose yourself to bright light at the time that what you want to be your morning, not at the actual morning of the actual day. So, yeah, <laughs> and meals and exercise, all of that aligned as well. Does the timing of exercise matter? Meaning, I guess this in twofold, like should you like meals, should you exercise at the same time every day? And is there a certain like time where you shouldn't exercise past like in the evening? There have been studies to say you shouldn't exercise within two hours of bedtime, you know, of vigorous exercise. I'm not sure that that, those, that research has been well replicated. So I don't have any recommendations except not right in the middle of your sleep. <laughs> don't wake up at four in the morning to exercise and then go back to bed at six. That's probably not a good idea. <laughs> 
what I'm hearing you say is the common theme throughout this conversation, or one of the common themes is to listen to your body and really pay attention to how you respond to all of this. And I want to dive into how this relates to alarm clocks and sleep trackers, because now sleep trackers have become incredibly popular between wearables and apps on the phone. What is your opinion on sleep trackers? Are they effective or should people really just focus on, you know, waking up on their own and paying attention to their body? I feel like if your sleep tracker makes you more anxious about your sleep, then it's probably not doing you any favors. The algorithms that tell you whether you had a good night's sleep or not, I think are, well, first of all, most of them are not public, what the algorithm is. And from what I can see, they, they don't carry a lot of information. You know, your sleep score is X. That's, that's, you know, there are so many ways you can have a good night's sleep and a bad night's sleep. All of these trackers that are on peripheral, you know, like your wrist or wherever else, if they're not actually recording your brain waves, they don't have 100% accuracy with the state that you're actually in. So if it tells you you're in this state or you did spent this amount of time in that other state, you know, the accuracy that varies from 50%, <laughs> right, which is almost the same as guessing, to, you know, as good as 78, 80-something percent. So it's not perfect. I say take it all with a grain of salt, a very healthy grain of salt. Listen to your body, I think, is the biggest thing to do. If your sleep tracker makes you go to bed on time more often, then hey, that's wonderful. That's good for you. If your sleep tracker has you worrying about your sleep and that worrying keeps you awake, then I'd say perhaps you should just take it off and and try going without it again. Yeah, I would love to see some changes in the way that sleep trackers are doing it. First of all, to make the data, the actual data available to the users so they know exactly how many times they woke up every night and what the algorithms, what the signals were that they used to give you that sleep score. So you know whether if it's a poor sleep score, if it's just because you went to bed at two in the morning and didn't and woke up at six, or it's because you went to bed on time, but you woke up 15 times that night. It would be nice to know what the difference is. So I would exhort all those who are working on sleep trackers to do a better job at giving you, the user, the data, the real data. <laughs> So as far as sleep trackers go, I know some of them, I think, will track like different stages of sleep and they'll show you maybe how much like REM sleep you got. Would you say that people should also take that data with a grain of salt as well? Yeah, absolutely. There was actually a good study, a paper out a couple of years ago. Let me see who published it. I have it here by the U.S. Naval Division in San Diego compared five different devices. Um, ActiveWatch, which is something that people have been using for a long, long time versus Fitbit and the Garmin, two of the different Garmin, two Fitbits, Early Sense Live, which is a mattress thing you put under your mattress, and two that do radio frequency basically to text sound, which was ResMed S Plus and Sleep Score Max. Anyway, it was a kind of head-to-head for all of those. And actually, they all roughly performed the same. There were a few that were better and for some states than others relative to, this is relative to the gold standard, which is EEG. So, you know, interesting that there was so much similarity. Almost all of them underestimated the number of times someone awoke and overestimated the amount of time they spent in N2 sleep. But, you know, and none of them were anywhere near 100%. Now, you know, how much something tracks relative to how you feel 
is not something that they uh, were able to measure and see. That would be really interesting as well. Somebody needs to do that one. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting to see like how these trackers evolve and hopefully some more research gets done and they can listen to what people like you and others are saying about how they can potentially improve the not only the user experience, but the accuracy of the data. So that way it's actually you know, more helpful for the people that are using them. And along those same lines, like what is your opinion on alarm clocks? And a lot of people use alarm clocks to get up because they have to be up at a certain time, whether it be for, you know, going to the gym, going to their job, taking the kids to school. Do you think that alarm clocks are effective for people or should people get used to waking up on their own? Well, if you can wake up on your own, go for it. Absolutely. But if you can't, then alarm clock is a, is a great way, a great way to get there on time. I use alarm clocks only because I'm an academic and I can get to work when I want to. And also my dog and cat both wake me up in the morning. They're my alarm clock. I use it only when I really have a flight to catch it or something where I absolutely have to be there. And it helps give me more peace about sleeping, knowing that there's this backup system of an alarm clock that will definitely wake me up. So if I don't have an alarm clock and I absolutely have to get up at a particular time, I find myself waking up a lot during the night saying, what time is it? Is it do I need to get up now? So for me, alarm clock helps me sleep better because I know that I will wake up when I need to. But if it's something that I really also am have internalized as my own deadline, I will wake up spontaneously just usually two minutes before my alarm goes off. And having had a good night's sleep because my own clock is actually pretty accurate, turns out. <laughs> right. So what I'm hearing you say is use an alarm clock if you need to. And but if you can get to the point where you're waking up without an alarm clock, do your best to kind of shift to that so that you can just get used to listening to your body and letting your body kind of work itself out. Speaking of waking up. I imagine like a telltale sign of whether or not somebody got a good night's sleep is they wake up and they feel like energetic. They feel, you know, their mind is clear and that sort of thing. One of the problems I struggle with is even though I'll be in bed for a good amount of time, I'll wake up and I'm still exhausted. What's going on there? Does that mean that I've gotten a poor night's sleep? And like, what can I do? It might be that that's, that's what it means. And it probably be good for you to get a sleep study in a sleep lab because it might be that you've wakened during the night many more times than you remember. And so your exhaustion is actually real, you know. And so a sleep study with EEG will tell you exactly how many times you woke up and for how long of a time it was. Another possibility is that you've awakened out of a state of sleep that is has a lot of sleep inertia. So maybe you've had a late morning surge of non-REM stage three. And so when you wake up, you've got all of this sleep inertia and that's why you feel exhausted. And if you have time to do it, I would say just go back to sleep and wake up out of a, a refreshing state like REM sleep. Yeah, typically my uh, habits sometimes are <laughs> I wake up tired and then I'm like, where's the coffee pot? And then that's like a cycle that I think a lot of people experience, right? As they wake up exhausted, they drink a bunch of caffeine that gets them through like the morning. And then it's like, all right, now lunchtime's here, feeling a little tired. So what can I get to have some more caffeine? And then the cycle just repeats. Yeah, yeah, definitely try and break that cycle. If you're still exhausted when you wake up in the morning and you have an extra hour, hour and a half, just go back to sleep and let yourself spontaneously awaken at bed two times out of three, maybe nine times out of 10, when you wake in again, you'll feel better. You'll feel better about it. Or another possibility is if you have to get up and you want to get up 
like say it's six in the morning because you want to go to bed at nine you want that to be your normal nine or ten to be your normal bedtime is force yourself out of bed you can drink that first cup of coffee but then don't do it at noon just drag on through the afternoon and get to bed when you want to the next night and that'll help you reset your clock to what you want it to be yeah, I'll have to try that. That's some good points. And I'm definitely going to specifically going to try the one where I don't drink caffeine in the afternoon, because many times when I'm waking up, it's like I have to be at work within like an hour or so. And I can't just go back to bed as much as I'd like to sometimes. So I guess what I'll have to do is then limit my caffeine exposure in the afternoon and make sure that I'm preparing to get myself a good night's sleep. Yeah, And if it's four o'clock and you absolutely feel like you cannot stay awake another minute, go for a run or something like that. Do some jumping jacks, talk with a friend who gets you laughing and wakes you up in a way that's not caffeine related. And that all of those things will help you sleep better that night. You got to get your natural dopamine rush, right? Instead of the artificial one we get from caffeine. Staying on this topic of you know, not sleeping well and having poor sleep quality and, and feeling tired throughout the day. You touched on, you know, some of the impacts that, you know, not sleeping well can have. Like, what are some of the, like, short and long-term impacts of, of sleep deprivation? And can these impacts be reversed? Oh, yes. Even one night sleep deprivation can wreak havoc on your body, especially your metabolic function, as well as your cognitive function. And some Mouse studies and rat studies have shown that even, you know, six hours of self-imposed sleep deprivation because the mice were doing something fun, like, you know, riding a roller coaster, mouse roller coaster equivalent, starts a degeneration pattern in a brainstem structure called the locus surrealis, which provides that noradrenaline to the forebrain. And you can arrest the degeneration. That's the first area that degenerates in Alzheimer's and a lot of other neurodegenerative diseases as well. So you don't want, you don't want to start that pattern. So um, some of the things that can block it are antioxidants. So it still stresses your locus rose to stay up even six hours, but you can at least block the cell death with antioxidants. And the person doing that study her name is Sigrid Vizi, and she's at the University of Pennsylvania. She's doing some really great work there. So the long-term consequences of irregular night sleep seems to be mild cognitive impairment, and that leads to greater and greater dementia as you get older and older. And that could also be related to the metabolic consequences of this irregular sleep pattern. So try and get regular night sleep, I would, I would definitely say. Yeah, and I was going to say something else about caffeine. One other thing, which is, say you woke up tired, you had to get up, you took your cup of coffee, you powered through lunch without caffeine, you're on your way home, and you are just really sleepy, and you're driving sleepy. Do not do not do that. Don't pull over and get a power drink. Just pull over, try and do some jumping jacks, or take a nap, you know, just a quick 20-minute power nap. 20-minute power nap is thankfully not long enough to, to get into that deep slow-wave sleep, which is blow off your slow waves. So you could still get a good night's sleep with a 20-minute power nap, but don't dry sleeping. I just wanted to put that warning in there for the because uh, there's an anti-caffeine message, but I don't want people falling asleep at the wheel either. So. Yeah, don't dry sleeping. We've already talked about why you shouldn't be, you know, drinking, you know, like a few hours before you go to bed. So obviously this is also a... Uh, a warning to not drive under the influence of alcohol as well, right? To make sure that you're driving responsibly, whether you are, you know, sober or not, to make sure that you're doing the right thing, not only for yourself, but for other people. 
And, and given what you just talked about, like, can any of these impacts be reversed if people get back into a good sleep schedule? So we don't really know the answer to that. And that is a really good question that needs to be looked into. I would like to think and hope that the early cognitive decline of aging, if you were able to restore big, deep, slow wave sleep, you could at least delay furthering of that cognitive decline but it might even be reversible. Certainly the sleep disruption that comes with having young children is reversible. There was a study that showed you lose 10 IQ points when you have a baby who wakes up often at night and keeps you awake at night. But that is reversed once you, they start sleeping through the night. So you can start sleeping through the night too. So yeah, there is some hope. Okay, good. It's good to know for not only myself, but for people listening to this, that if they do you know, listen to some of the stuff that you're saying and sharing on this podcast and get back into a normal sleep schedule and start to optimize their sleep that they can improve their long-term health. Yeah. And actually metabolic function is something that's already been shown to be immediately reversed as soon as you're getting enough sleep again. So type two diabetes, there are early signs of that with terrible sleep schedules that you can reverse. So that's good news. Good to know. So it's not only motivating me to be more aware of my sleep schedule, but hopefully it's going to inspire people listening to this to, you know, jot some notes down throughout this podcast so that they can, you know, do the same. One of the other things that often gets talked about is supplementation before sleep. You talked about melatonin briefly. I used to drink sleepy time tea. I couldn't tell if it's placebo or not of why it might help calm me down. I've used things like chamomile and magnesium has been helpful for me. What are some supplements that maybe you've personally used or that you have seen in the research that's actually legitimate as far as helping people fall and stay asleep? Yeah. Again, for older people especially, melatonin is helpful. Um, and there are some more controlled substances that are being developed. They're melatonin receptor agonists. You know they have the drug in it that you think. So that's actually pretty good and, pre and fairly harmless without any negative side effects. Some people are, the NIH is starting to look into orexin antagonists, which again, is something that you can't find naturally. It's not a natural supplement that is already there on the market. And there's dual receptor, orexin receptor antagonists, and that could help some people as well take down the anxiety and the drive that keeps them awake, helps them go to sleep. But again, these are things that are being studied right now. For me, myself and I, what helps me most if I'm super stressed and that's what's causing the insomnia or disrupted sleep, B vitamin complex is what really helps me. And it might be because my own system doesn't absorb B vitamins as well as it should. But, but when I take one, it helps just make the whole world seem more approachable. And I can face the day with more calm and evenness and I can go to sleep with more peace. Isn't B vitamins and certain B vitamins in the B complex, aren't they precursors to some neurotransmitters that we need? They're precursors to a lot of really essential biochemical events, including the things that help us to manage stress. So um, that's why I take it if I'm going to have a really big stressful day and I know I'm going to have to talk in front of thousands of people, it really it helps me keep my feet on the ground <laughs> and not spin up. Yeah. Speaking of stress, I've talked a lot about mental health, trauma, anxiety on the, on the podcast. We've had a lot of people on the show to talk about it. I love how I heard you talk about 
sleep and the impact on trauma on uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman's podcast. Um, I'd love to you to share some of those insights because I think people would really enjoy hearing how important sleep is in the context of healing from trauma. Yeah, so sleep is still being looked into, but there's a lot that happens during sleep that helps um, reset our emotional system. One of the things that REM sleep and that transition to REM sleep does is it, our research is showing it and others, that of others around us, they're showing that we can sort of downscale the emotionality of a memory through sleep. So we will remember the strong emotions that were associated with the event, the traumatic event. But when we recall it, we won't have to recall physically all of that stress that we felt at the time. And that's because sleep helps us to consolidate the facts and the context and all of the important details of the traumatic event, while it helps us to not put with that all of the emotions and the feeling, the senses that we had. So that when we can recall that trauma later, it's not recalling with together with all those emotions. Now, that's what happens normally. And it seems like REM sleep, especially when you have a dream that's related to the trauma, but isn't exactly what the trauma was, like it switches and there's some, something weird about it. You've morphed some aspect of it. Then it seems to be that it's really healthy sleep that's on the way to recovery. But if you instead have nightmares that awaken you and that are more exactly what happened and with reliving that traumatic event, instead that I think it becomes a maladaptive kind of sleep that actually helps to cement emotions of that trauma in with the memory of the trauma. And so what we're doing right now is we're researching ways to help animals, including humans, that have already started on the maladaptive traumatic sleep path to switch to the adaptive sleep path. And that requires a downscaling of the sympathetic fight or flight system during that REM sleep period, which is normally what happens. Normally, our sympathetic system is off during REM sleep. But in those that have post-traumatic stress disorder, that sympathetic system doesn't stop firing. It doesn't stop working. It's still on while we're in REM sleep. So instead of REM sleep helping to do that downscaling of emotions, and in fact, if anything, you know, cements those, those emotions in. So we're, we're working on ways to calm the sympathetic nervous system either through drugs or so we're using propranolol, which is a... Um, beta adrenergic neuroadrenergic receptor blocker and that so far the results are really good and that's just before sleep after recalling a traumatic event just before sleep take that beta blocker the clinical trials that have been done with that so beta blockers are something that we're trying people have tried alpha receptor blockers prazosin but in my model of how it all works. Prazosin might help with nightmares because it might help the forebrain um, not be panicking while you're sleeping, but it won't necessarily do the divorcing of memories and do the actual curative work that perhaps propranolol can do. I would love to test next the dual orexin receptor antagonist because orexin, it's also called hypercretin, is a, is a neurotransmitter in the brain that drives us to seek fulfillment of any sort. And so hypocretin orexin system is the thing that is increased by 500% in those who have been addicted, for example, to heroin. People who've been addicted to heroin, the amounts of that go up 500%. And so 
a dual orexin receptor antagonist might, especially before sleep, might help that sort of hyperactive system to calm down because the orexinergic system excites the noradrenergic system. And so if you're helping that to calm down, the noradrenergic system can calm down too during sleep. Your sleep can be restful and restorative and do the process of rewriting our memories in adaptive ways. So that's the next thing that we'd like to look into for better sleep. So is what you'll be monitoring throughout this process, like how the animals and then humans, how they progress throughout their sleep cycles and how like REM sleep and stuff like that's impacted? Yes, exactly. So one of the things that happens, we are also doing some studies with animals that have been exposed to oxycodone, you know, one of the opiates, and see how that disrupts their sleep and then see how we can improve their sleep again. So we're going to be monitoring their sleep the number of times they wake up. The worse your quality of sleep, if you've been addicted to anything, actually, really anything, even cigarettes, the more disrupted your sleep is, that is a good predictor of relapse behaviors into the drug seeking. And it's probably related to the fact that this disrupted sleep is indicative of high stress levels and poor quality sleep. So if we can make that quality of sleep good by downscaling the sympathetic nervous system in any way, whether it's dual rexamnetic receptor antagonist, propranolol, if we could teach rats to meditate, we would, um, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah, that's the thing that we're, we're going to be trying to work with and see if that can really help prevent relapse, prevent relapse of fear and PTSD, and just help all of these animals, including humans, get better night's sleep. Gosh, I, that is so interesting. I mean, I've been in recovery from opiates for over 14 years, my drug of choice was Oxycontin. Thank you. I detoxed in jail. So my environment was a little bit different, I think, than many people when they get into recovery. And I had other challenges that came along with that, with my ability to sleep while I was in jail. I think in some ways it actually made it easier because I wasn't as distracted by other things. There was a lot of things I couldn't do. I, I couldn't just, you know, walk out of the jail and go do whatever I wanted to, right? Go watch an exciting movie. <laughs> yeah. So in a way it helped me because I was able to be kind of secluded in my cell while I was detoxing and able to get some sleep. But a lot of people who listen to my show, they're in recovery or they've struggled with their mental health or there's parents that have kids or, or loved ones that have struggled is what you would recommend to help people, you know, sleep more efficiently. Some of the things we talked about, what people can do before bed, is it the same as like what average people could do? Or is the tools that somebody could use, are they different for people who have experienced trauma or the recovering from addiction? You know, I think that's a great question. And we don't know the answer to that. But all of our bodies are the same in the sense that, you know, the same things that rile all of us, rile all of us and disturb our sleep, disturb all of our sleep. So and the things that help, like exercise, do help. You once described another thing that you were doing while you're in jail is exercising, right? You started right. bodybuilding, and that might have been extremely helpful for you to get good night's sleep, in addition to the fact that there weren't all these distractions. So I definitely recommend exercise. And all of these self-calming kinds of techniques, whether it's mindfulness or whatever it is, we all have the same nervous system. But like I said before, different things calm different people in different ways. What might be relaxing for me might be totally stress-inducing for someone else. So you need to find your own, your own zone and figure out what that is. It seems to me that sleep is like the foundation for everything when it comes to health, whether it comes to your physical health, your mental health, your metabolic health, your emotional health. 
One thing you talked about in the context of trauma and sleep is that, you know, throughout the process of sleep, we're able to like process a lot of these memories and heal in a way that's kind of healthy throughout our sleep. One of the things I wanted to ask you is like, I find myself sometimes when I'm thinking about something, I end up having a dream about that, like either that night or later on in the week or a week later, or whatever. Like, why does that happen? <laughs> we don't know exactly. Oh, okay. Some people call it the recency effect. Um, <laughs> but if you do incorporate it into your dreams, it's quite possible that if it's something that you are trying to look for a solution for, you could come up with a solution, a more creative solution to it. We do know that when you're dreaming, you are reactivating those things and it's an extremely plastic time in your brain. So you can form new associations with your dreams that you didn't have before. So even though I don't go in for dream analysis in terms of, you know, the psychotherapy style dream analysis, I think it's really healthy to, if you can, review your dreams and try and figure out what's on your mind and what conclusions have you drawn from this dream? Because it is a very plastic state. What is your opinion on uh, whether or not dreams can come true? <laughs> I'm totally agnostic. There haven't been any studies on that at all. <laughs> Not scientific studies. <laughs> it's really hard to do dream research because most of the time people don't even remember their dreams. And it's those reports of you know dreams that come true are so anecdotal, it might be coincidental. But there are some times when there's like, wow, that seems like a big coincidence. But there haven't been any studies, so I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> what about bad dreams? What causes that? I think bad dreams come from the same place good dreams come from. I, and some people say that all dreams are just random and that when we wake up, we sew the story together, but random activations in our brain. But there's another great hypothesis by Bob Stickold and Antonio Zadra. I'm sure I'm getting that wrong. But anyway, they were saying that what you do in your dreams is you practice various outcomes so that you're ready for whatever comes during the next day. And that's sort of flexing various possible possibility pathways. And in fact, even really young babies, firstborn, have this state of sleep. So it very well may be that they're practicing, you know, smiling and frowning and kicking and, you know, moving their muscles in that state of sleep. So it's, I think that idea of it, you know, it's a very plastic state. There's definitely things that can be rewired during REM sleep. And so it's, makes perfect sense that that would be a time when you can practice various outcomes and be ready for them when they come. This is also fascinating to me. And I could like spend like five, six, seven hours just chatting with you about this stuff because it's so interesting. I mean, not just, I mean, I could spend literally days chatting with you about this stuff because I'm just so fascinated by it. But I think this is a good place for us to end our conversation. We covered so much, Gina, in this that I think so many people are going to they're going to learn a lot and they're going to want to, you know, follow along with your work. So where's the best place for people to follow along your research and what you're doing or if they want to connect with you, where's the best place to do that? Well, you can Google. <laughs> Google <me. laughs> I also have a lab website called Poe underline sleep lab. And it's a weebly, I think, website. We need to update it, but that's where we show a lot of the papers that we've published and you can download them there and you can see what we're working on right now through that website. 
Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to link that in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is share a takeaway. We, t- we covered so much ground when it comes to sleep, when it comes to staying asleep, when it comes to falling asleep, when it comes to waking up in the middle of the night, like how to know if your sleep quality is good. We talked about the different stages of sleep. We talked about mental health and stress and anxiety and how all of that relates to sleep. We talked about addiction, caffeine, alcohol. We covered so much. And what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Whatever the takeaway was within the context of what we talked about today, make sure to tag myself, tag Gina, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.